Hi, I'm Andrew, and this is the Daily Keenon podcast about today's global crisis. The coronavirus pandemic is dramatically disrupting not only our own daily lives, but also society itself. This show features conversations with some of the world's leading thinkers and writers about the deeper economic, political, and technological consequences of the pandemic. It's the daily podcast trying to make long-term sense out of the chaos of today's global crisis. Hello, everybody. It is March the 5th, 2021. But as we know in this show, history is always all around us. The past is never dead. And that's particularly the case when it comes to the Second World War and the Holocaust. Um, lots of stories still in the media every day about the Holocaust, one kind or another. There's the story about a Holocaust survivor who showed up for a vaccine in the New York Times and charmed the hospital because of her experience in this darkest moment, perhaps, in human history and her ability to bring, bring perspective to our own troubling times. And then, of course, there are still the stories of 100-year-old former concentration camp guards charged with Holocaust atrocities who are still ending up in courtrooms uh, in Germany. There's another one of a 95-year-old concentration camp guard uh, removed from Tennessee, sent back to Germany. This is just from last week. So the past is never dead, of course. Um, and the people who know that best of all are our historians. Very lucky to have today on the show one of America's leading historians and the author of a wonderful new book called The Ravine, A Family, A Photograph, A Holocaust Massacre Revealed. Uh, her name is Wendy Lauer, and she teaches uh, in Southern California. Uh, Wendy, um, the past is never dead, is it? No, it's not. And uh, we always have opportunities if we uh, have the opportunity to, to look for it, to uncare. It's all around us. We are uh, open to observing it, to researching it. Your last book, or this book that we're talking about today, The Ravine, was triggered by a photograph you stumbled across by complete accident while you were doing some research. Here's the photo, a very troubling one. What is it about this photo, Wendy, that led to a several year historical trek through the past, through many countries around the world, and this wonderful new book, The Ravine? Uh, thank you, first of all, for having me on your show and taking such an interest in the book um, before I kind of launch into the story of the photograph. Um, I, you know, if you, when you show that to your viewers, when you see that, I think they will agree that it gives us pause. We have to stop. Some people will turn away from it. They'll say that's just too depressing. That's too grim. But uh, I'm. But, but just to, they shouldn't turn away from it, should they, Wendy? I mean, some people are going to be listening to this, but hopefully, a lot of people are going to be watching and they're going to see this photo. There's nothing pornographic about this. It's something that people need to look at. Isn't that fair? Absolutely. That's the argument of the book and not to indulge in any kind of lurid fascination with it. And actually it does have a certain 
uh, composition that one could argue is a kind of pornographic atrocity photo with the women, the woman in that position with the men with their guns. So let's let's be clear about that. And so one must handle these photographs with care and take on the task of researching them and putting in their proper historical uh, context and explaining what is going on there. Who are the people? Where did this happen? What happened to them? And how can we learn from this history? This this is the literally the, the culmination of, of ideologies of hate and racism. This is where it can go, where it can lead to. And this this is a warning um, as, as well as a call to action. Uh, the book is a narrative about your relationship with this photograph and our relationship with it. You begin in the book and it it's a very short book. It's a it's a refreshingly <laughs> short book. I have to say, Wendy, for a historian, too many historians come on this show with 500 page books and they're so boring. But your book is anything but boring. You write at first glance, I could see from certain details that the image originated in the Holocaust. The Nazi uniforms, the wartime era clothing of European civilians, the long barreled wooden rifles and a woman and a boy, relatives, perhaps a mother and a son being shot by Germans and local collaborators at the end at the edge of a ravine. You suggest that this photo, though, which seems familiar to us, isn't actually familiar. It's a very rare photo, which uh, triggered the book and all your interest. What's so rare about this photo? Well, we recognize it as a Holocaust photo, as you've just described, but we make certain assumptions when we look at it. We assume that there are a lot of these photos because, you know, the number of six million, right? The magnitude of the scale. This is the age of photography. The, the Germans collaborators there, they not the Ukrainians, but the man who took the photograph, they had their handheld camera. This is the age of the burst, you know, bursting forth of consumption of photography and the handheld camera. So things are being documented more and more visually, um, including these crimes. But although the Holocaust um, was carried out in broad daylight, as we can see in this image, the Nazis were very keen on confiscating these images and warning soldiers, ordinary soldiers and SS men to not take pictures of atrocities. They could take pictures of their triumph over um, over uh, the cities that they uh, occupied in Belarus and other parts of Eastern Europe and across Europe. Um, but Heinrich Himmler, the, the chief of the Reichswehr of the SS and police, was repeatedly sending out these orders to lower level officials like to not take pictures of the actual mass murder. So we don't have that. We have lots of photographs. We have um, hundreds of thousands of photographs, in fact, and millions from the Second World War. It was the most photographed war um, to, at that point, to that point. Um, but we uh, don't have actual images that show the point of murder of death. We have images of Jews being rounded up, their corpses afterwards. Uh, we have the liberation photos that are really, um, really shocking as well. But those are uh, basically um, Jews on the way to death and Jews after they had been killed. So therefore, you treat this book um, as a crime scene. You write, as soon as I saw the photograph and held it in my hand, I wanted to break the frame around the crime scene, which kept the victims frozen in that awful manner. The photograph captures an event locked in time, but I knew it was part of a fluid situation. What preceded that moment of death? What followed and what happened to each person visible there. So your book is, in a sense, a whodunit, isn't it? A very grim it whodunit. Yeah, it's a detective story that a historian 
would pursue, which means that it's not only trying to solve the crime. I mean, we 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 know uh, what happened here uh, historically. Um, the photograph itself had the name of the photographer, the date it was taken, October 13th, 1941, and the location, which is Mirapol, Ukraine, about 100 miles west of Kiev. Um, and so we we had that basic information. But I wanted to pick apart the elements of the photograph to um, provide a deeper um, day did this occur? What about witnesses? There's a man, kind of an onlooker, walking around in the background. So go back to these sites and interview the Ukrainians who were, this, this was their hometown. These were their Jewish neighbors. Those Ukrainian policemen were from that town. They knew the, the Jewish victims who were marched to the edge of that pit. Um, so it's not only about who, what, where, when, why, but also trying to understand the more deeper meaning of genocide and the fact that the photographer deliberately is testifying to this event um, and to the fact that the women and children are in the middle. His family unit is standing in the middle. And he's also trying to um, document collaboration as a theme, right? So that's different um, than if you're a prosecutor and you want to catch the bad guys here, which I wanted to, and I, I pursued them as well. But I'm also trying to get at deeper issues of why are these victims so hard to uncover that they're missing? You know, what is collaboration? How, how is anti-Semitism shared among these these Ukrainian militia and German um, officers, they don't speak the same language, but they're firing their guns, you know, shoulder to shoulder and, and, and killing these, these innocent um, women and children. They didn't see them as innocent. They saw them as a kind of um, eternal enemy, you know, in their view, their anti-Semitic ideology. So, Wendy, we have the complete photo here for people watching of a group of men killing a... Um, a woman, an unidentified woman, and a, and, a, and a small child. I've broken the photo down into three parts. Uh, the, the first is really just the killers, the four men with guns. What did you find in your travels and your analysis about these men, the people who perpetrated this terrible crime? Well, um, as I studied their uniforms, let's start with the Germans in the background. Um, the two men there, I, those are not, uh, if you know your Nazi history and your, and all the various agencies that participated in this state-sponsored crime, this is state-sponsored violence. This is not a pogrom. This is, these are the organized mass shootings. Um, and those, those insignia actually were not um, Himmler's minions. Those were actually customs guards. Um, in 1969, one of the men in that unit outside of in West Germany at the time, outside of Hanover, Germany, walked into a police station in a small town in the evening, actually, uh, in January and said, I'd like to report a crime. And yeah, and here's said, the uh, the license <laughs> that you have the image of the license in the book of this particular crime. It really brings to mind uh, Arendt's notion of the banality of evil that 40 or 30 years later, one of the people involved in this walked into a German police station and reported a crime. Right, uh, just astounding, and he, and then the uh, the, the gentleman on on um, at the desk at that time typed up that 
that report as you just showed. So it's just bizarre to see a kind of standard West German police report that is accounting for that image that we see. Now, the West Germans did not have the photograph that we see. That photograph was locked in an archive in Prague, a kind of former KGB type you know, security services archive. The photograph had been brought to my attention um, by some journalists in Prague while I was working at the Holocaust Museum in Washington, DC. So the photograph was not available to investigators. So we have the advantage of this visual evidence, and we then I can go back into the archives and read these German documents and various reports and corroborate or see where there's um, blatant lying. So the Germans who were brought in and questioned about this crime, who were in that customs unit, um, denied that they even shot anyone. Um, they, you know, um, denied the uh, the victims were Jewish. They had. Um, you know, several ways of, of obfuscating. They provided some vivid details um, about uh, massacres in, in the town, but of course they, they attempted every attempt, you know, they tried very um, uh, uh, cleverly um, to not- uh, Yeah, but, but it's, uh, I think that aspect of the book, uh, Wendy, and your analysis is perhaps the least surprising. Surprise, surprise. Mass murdering German troops denied that they did anything wrong. I mean, is there anything in the book that's new about the investigation of the criminals, the Germans and the non-Germans, the Ukrainians who, who committed this crime? Well, on the, on the German side, what's new is that these customs guards participated in this way and volunteered. Those killers in that photo are all volunteer killers. So the SS had come in and said, who wants to shoot Jews tomorrow? And they and, and the worst of the anti-Semites in that particular customs unit, you know, and think about it. When you think about today, our conversations about who are the really um, extreme white supremacists that have, or, you know, that have infiltrated various um, government agencies and forces, you know, um, then these situations can happen um, and, and violence can escalate. So these guys just said, wait, yes, we'll do this. And they joined those um, Ukrainian militiamen. Um, the surprise on the Ukrainian militiamen, they're standing next to them, they're wearing uh, repurposed Red Army coats and they just have an armband on. Um, they were actually identified and um, arrested and convicted. Um, and among the last trials that occurred in the former Soviet Union in the late 80s, they were actually executed by firing squad, um, those Ukrainian killers, two of them, in January 1987. There was a third killer among the Ukrainians who's not pictured in that image. So when I found the, the trial records from the uh, Soviet side of the story, and the Soviets did not have this photograph either, but the testimony they collected and they forced those Ukrainian policemen to reenact, go back to that crime scene and they photographed them reenacting what happened. And it fits perfectly with, you know, their, mm. their descriptions and their, with this image, right? But so they were caught, they were, they were found. One of the Ukrainian killers was 15 years old at the time when he was shooting Jews and a minor. So he was given um, a sentence, a jail sentence. And we don't know what happened to him. And he so. disappeared. He seems as he was sent mm -hmm. to a camp. So in terms of this triptych that I've invented, at least in my mind, the, third, the second piece of the photo is the land. And your description of this ravine is very bleak. You went there several times. In fact, you led a team to do some excavation in a sense. I guess historians are archaeologists, but you literally became an archaeologist in the ravine. Is that fair, Wendy? Well, I went back with a crew, um, Yahad and Unum, a camera crew and some um, individuals who had been working on mass graves in all across the former Soviet Union and, and also in northern Iraq. They've, they've been doing some work 
um, as far as the plight of the Yazidis. So these are folks who know how to study the landscape and look for certain features as far as the vegetation, um, the the shape of the, mm. the, the kind of um, disruption of, of the um, terrain, uh, the, what they call the kind of haloing effect when you um, dig into the ground in the way that digging had been done here into that mm. pit. Um, it was, I thought it was a ravine, actually. Um, there was a ravine in town, a, 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 a very large one, where um, Jews were shot, but it turns out there were three shooting sites in that town. This is one of them in the photo. Is this um, fair? I, 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 I've located Mirapol on my oh, great. Google map, but I know you said there's more than one Mirapol, which is in, in Russia, in the center of the earth, in Ukraine. Is that the right one, the, the red dot on, on this map? Yes, it is. You found it. Yes, it's as I said, about 100 miles, 120. Yeah, in the middle of uh, in the middle of the Ukraine, which uh, of course um, is perhaps not a, a place most people would choose to go on holiday. And you need a strong stomach to read about this land in your book, um, Wendy. One of the one of the anecdotes that really made me feel physically sick was the story of one of the farmers who said that they shot a boar later after the war. And when they opened the bore up, it, it was full of human remains. So clearly these these corpses were left and then eaten by animals. Yes, I mean, completely unprotected is another assault against Jewish religious, anyone's burial, right to a dignified burial. This is this is part of our understanding of, of how we uphold our religious customs and also just the dignity of being a human being, a proper burial, a place of rest. And these Jews who were buried in their clothes, in this case, um, and the, the um, Ukrainians, local inhabitants, who were really desperate for material, they were, many of them, um, impoverished. And so um, looking for gold, looking for clothes, looking for any valuables that the Jews had brought to the grave uh, without any regard for them. And that disrupted the landscape. And that also, ultimately, the um, disinterment of that grave, not only by looters, but by investigators um, in the 80s, brought bulldozers in there. And just the, the whole landscape there was just bizarre. Like when I was standing there, it was like a moonscape. It was so such a mess uh, to stand and look at that. You knew something happened there. Um, it is a, a bit. It is a haunted place, I have to say. Um, and so, well, much um, of uh, as 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 Tim Schneider has written about this whole whole geographical place. I mean, not just the, you know the Ukraine, the bloodlands. Belarus, the bloodlands, uh, and of course. You know, for many people, the heart of the photo is the image of this unnamed child and woman. You, you're not sure. You, you suspect that it may be uh, an aunt and her nephew. Uh, you, you attempt to track the names of these people down. And I'm not sure if it's actually a sad part of the book. Perhaps it's best that you never discover who they are. Uh, but what is your sense of these 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 victims of this catastrophe of this terrible crime? Well, the search for the missing is, as you point out, one of the, the themes of the book. And there, and many have asked me, "Aren't you frustrated that you couldn't pinpoint the exact identities of these victims?" And actually, I've had an incredible response from readers. Somebody wrote me the other day from this region and said that um, she's, just a, her family, she's a survivor, actually. 4,500 um, individuals had been massacred in her town. 
And she said, I know this frustrating search. I only have lists from the Soviet um, investigators uh, immediately after the war. They didn't make a huge effort to really um, identify everybody um, by name, and they have a few hundred names. So, I mean, every fourth victim of the Holocaust who was murdered, every fourth victim of the Holocaust who was murdered was murdered in the terrain of what is Ukraine today, Ukraine's borders, every fourth. And we have, when we talk about a million people who have not been identified, mostly children, they're from this part of Europe. This was historically the the concentration of, of the shtetl communities, the Pale of Settlement. This is where Jews resided in the in the Russian Empire, the highest um, population mm. densities of Jews. And the Germans went in there, wiped them out in these killing actions, quickly um, uh, planned them the night before, um, didn't make up any lists, didn't write up any names, just brought them to the edge of town, and and that and that was it. And the local population was not going to make the effort, the non-Jewish population to really identify by name all these victims. They themselves have been suffering from the war. Um, and some of them benefited, you know, personally benefited and enriched themselves by those in those massacres and were not going to be very forthcoming either because they were afraid of being um, arrested and prosecuted. Yeah, um, and, it, and it's certainly a, it's, it's a wake up call to those of us who, who, when we think of the Holocaust, we think of the, the industrial scale killings in, in, in the concentration camps with the use of gas. The book is also wonderfully uh, sort of, uh, I don't know, the depth of the book is added by your discovery of the Slovakian photographer. Here, the photographer, here is a photograph, for those able to see this, a photograph of the mm. photographer himself, a man called Skrivina, who, who turns out to be a pretty good guy and, and not what you'd expect of a, of a Slovakian somehow would be who, who was at the scene taking photos of this atrocity. So tell me a little bit about Scrivina. Yes, uh, he turns out to be a really decent guy. And this, in many ways, sustained me in this project because it's, it's such a difficult photograph to research and the frustration over not finding the family, although identifying another child on, on the mother's lap was, to me, um, I, I, I was glad to do that to establish that there was another soul in that picture to be accounted for there. The little, the, the, you can see the legs there. Um, but um, the photographer, you know, again, all these assumptions that we that we have to um, check, right? We, we can't assume that we can identify every victim, even though we read off names during our memorial events. There are many who are still missing. That's the point of genocide, that the missing are missing. That's what the genocide setters want. They want disappearance. They want extinction. Uh, I didn't. I thought I could identify the Germans. Um, uh, and I did actually. That was that was good. I assumed they were order police or SS, but they weren't. Um, and there we got the Ukrainians. And lastly, the photographer. Right. So the picture is so clear and taken at such a close range. Um, and we know he was a guard. You know, this was again on the collaboration issue. We have Ukrainians, Slovakians, Germans in the invasion of the Soviet Union. Um, but this Slovakian guard did not want to be there. He didn't want to even wear a uniform. He brought his camera there when he heard the shooting. He knew what was happening. He grabbed his camera. He said, I'm going to document this. And here's this an image not- of the camera itself. And the camera itself becomes a star in the, in the, in, in the book because he later uh, gives this camera to a, a, a Slovakian um, museum. 
Exactly. And when I found the camera and realized the model and the make of it and what film he was using, because he wrote letters to his wife, I figured out that it could, that particular day, he had film in which he could take seven photographs and found the five. And they are all printed in the book. There, I went back to the Prague Ar Archive. And indeed, he is telling us, testifying visually, step by step, what happened the day, that day. And this image of the woman and child is, is his central image, his central statement of what genocide is. And he takes these images, he goes back to his hometown in Banska Bistritsa, joins the resistance, shows the photographs to the Jewish community there, what's left of it, hides Jews in his attic. One of them is an OBGYN and delivers his son in 1943. So these, this is actually this photograph that is so horrific to look at is actually a, a photograph of resistance as far as what, you know, the photographer was attempting. Yeah, to do. and you take current. on uh, Susan Sontag's idea of you quote Sontag, you say photography, at least according to Sontag, is essentially an act of non-intervention. But you disagree with that. You see photography in a more perhaps Czech or Slovakian or Central European sense as potentially as, as, as polemical as any kind of writing or art or, 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 or movie or song. As a form of expression and a form of, of action, this photograph it is. It has its own agency in a way, and, and as far as not only um, the photographer was interrogated uh, during and after the war because of these photos, he had to endure that. It sets things in motion, and, and photography, as we know, is really important for uh, criminal investigations, and um, since the advent of photography, it's been used in this way. So yes, he, he, kept, he held his camera. He did not put it down and intervene and, and rescue those Jews, and in that regard, Susan Zontag is right. Um, he could have... Uh, tried to disrupt what was happening. Um, he had that within his means. He chose instead to take the picture and then act at that point. He, he, he believed that he couldn't actually save these Jewish lives, um, but instead um, changed his behavior, changed his course of action, and undertook uh, resistance uh, and support for those he believed he could rescue back in his hometown. Yeah, and your your book is an attempt, I, I guess, in some ways, to politicize a photo. There's a long tradition of that. You remind us of that. There's the famous photo yeah. of Alan Kurdi lying dead on a, a Greek beach, a Syrian refugee. This very famous photograph from uh, so-called uh, the 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 Napalm Girl from 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 the Vietnam War. Uh, there's a long history of this. Do you see yourself as as politicizing this photograph, uh, Wendy? Um, I don't know. No, I, I'm not. I'm, I'm trying to argue that these photographs and researching them are essential to understanding the past, trying to prevent the... I don't mean that in a critical way, but of, of, of bringing out their meaning for a broader audience and, and giving them broader political, cultural, historical meaning. Absolutely. Absolutely. So if we make the connections to the power of photography today, it can be a kind of a roadmap, as it were, of... You know, one of the other things I mentioned in the introduction, introduction is if you uncovered photos from lynchings, right? Um, if we can really investigate those and investigate what happened and who's in those photographs, um, it can tell us a lot about the history of racism here in the United States um, and of the collective violence, the kind of pogrom type of violence that was inflicted on um, black communities across the U.S., especially in the Southern. Yeah, and it, and it certainly is a wake-up call in our Instagram-dominated culture. Yes, yeah, and social media. I mean, inane photos. photos. 
I mean, one of the photographs that I mentioned that's, re that's recycled all the time as a kind of go-to Holocaust photograph in museums is the man in Vinitsa, Ukraine, again, not far from Mirapol, about, uh, about 80 miles or so, sit, kneeling before a pit, wearing a crumpled jacket, kind of being, being um, shot in the back of the neck. People have seen this. They've asked me about it. Um, that photograph was, if you read the footnotes, my book is compact. The storytelling is compact. I want people to kind of absorb it in one or two sittings, but the footnotes are rather deep. I kind of pulled everything mm. out of there and they have many histories in the footnotes too. Now you've made me feel um, bad because I didn't read the footnotes, <laughs> then you read the book. Oh, check out, you'll learn even more in the footnotes. But anyway, um, so if, if you uh, uh, look into the footnotes, you'll see that there are more stories about these photographs. And the one from Vinitsa, I found out, had been reproduced on T-shirts and commercialized on mugs. And, you know, right. so the, the other message is, that these photos, we should look at them, but as again, handle with care and not, you know, commercialize them in this way, but understand um, uh, the, the power of these photographs to actually affect change and, and understanding about um, racism and anti-Semitism. Right. And I, and I got the sense from the book that the, the main lesson, if anything, you got, or maybe you're imparting to your readers from this photograph, is the importance of family. Uh, you're quoting a, a Jewish historian. The family was the nucleus of Jewish life for the shtetl mm -hmm. to survive and Judaism to prevail. There was nothing more important than a strong family. And particularly the women were key, you discover. Mm. Uh, images of Holocaust victims like the Mirapol photo of the Madonna-like mother and her child revealed how a Western aesthetic valuing maternal love and sacrifice can be simultaneously consecra consecrated and desecrated. And here's the, the, the key point I think you're making in the book. Nazi policy was two-pronged, family welfare and family destruction. Was that the, the, what you most learned from the book in terms of the, the Nazi attitude towards the Jews that you learned from this photo and your, your tracking down of its meaning? Yes, I. the family unit uh, is something that has been addressed but not fully analyzed in genocide studies. And, and Lemkin talked about the different groups that are targeted and what is the ideology behind genocide and political groups and ethnic groups and religious groups. And as I looked at this image and I thought about the Nazi kind of biological destruction imperative as they saw it, I mean, Hitler told his Croatian ally in the summer of 41, not one Jewish family is to remain in Europe. He said, historically, they always come back, they reproduce, we, you know, during the expulsions of the 15th century, they came back and the children will rise up and they will avenge the murder of their parents and Himmler felt the same way. And that was when they um, moved into this um, campaign of entire families, entire communities being destroyed, what genocide scholars called root and branch um, killing, uh, biological um, destruction. So if you understand how the Nazis saw the survival of the Aryan race as um, procreation, that was their kind of constructive policy, uh, natalist policy of, of growing the, the Aryan race. And the kind of flip side of that was to make sure that all their kind of so-called racial enemies and inferiors could not exist. And so that their ability to, so the sterilization campaigns that occurred, right, to prevent procreation mm -hmm. was a first step, but then it led ultimately to really targeting full families um, so that, that, you know, in the racial mentality, they would not come back or they would not avenge or they would not 
um, reproduce. So that's the genocide, genocide heirs um, thinking on why the family unit is important, but it's also taken to different levels as well in the kind of the sadistic violence that we see even in places like the Congo today where um, family members are forced to witness the suffering of their loved ones. And that becomes part of the real cruelty of this, of kind of the ultimate cruelty of, of genocide, of, um, of, you know, everyone's biggest nightmare to, to have to be, you know, to be murdered with your, with your children or to, or to see your, um, or to, for your children to, to, to see a parent murdered. Um, so it's also the, the standpoint then of the perspective of the victims and their, uh, the suffering they um, um, experienced, um, this level of it, uh, of this very intimate um, kind of uh, uh, violation of, of, of love and, um, you know, and of the family unit and the sense that that's the core unit of, of how we're protected and how we care for one another. And that was just destroyed. Uh, uh, Wendy, uh, the one thing we don't, well, I guess we do see in this photo are couple of images of the victims of their shoes. Many of us have been to Auschwitz to see this mountain of shoes from, mm. from murdered Jews of Auschwitz. You end your book with a, a poem about shoes. You said the, foot, the feet from these boots with buttons outside or those with no body or those with no bride, where is the child who fit in these? Is the maiden barefoot who bought these slippers and pumps? Look, there are my mother's, her Sabbath pair, in with the others. Um, the book is really about the disappearance of a certain way of life, not just shoes. There's a certain elegiac quality to it. The world that you described that was destroyed by the Germans can never be brought back, can it? No, I mean, we see this in the fact that the language of those communities is a kind of a disappearing language of Yiddish, for instance, that was a poem by um, Suits Caver, who was sorting through shoes that had been returned after Jews had been deported to gassing centers and some of their belongings were then brought back and he was sorting through them. And, and those shoes were a, a kind of a, a Proustian kind of trigger for him as far as his memory of, of, of what it, the culture of Jewish existence, of rituals, of uh, gatherings, family gatherings, of celebrations, um, and, you know, this entire region was so beautifully documented by ethnographers that that lost world of, of the shtetl, which we don't want to overly romanticize as we look back on it kind of nostalgically. It was there was a lot of poverty and, and there were a lot of, uh, you know, it was uh, not um, paradise. But but the, but yes, the shoes become this device both in our collective memory in Holocaust iconography and. Um, and also in, in the real experience of the Jews themselves as they hold those shoes in their hands and, and each imprint of, of the individual in the shoe that's unique to the, to the individual. I was just taken in the photograph as I picked it apart, um, and you can go back to that maybe, you've, you've done a great job here, and you can see the shoes down there in the foreground, and it just right. had that, that kind of absence and silence and then that crumpled coat, and I thought, well, is that the a father was that part, you know, as a Jewish man, and they're maybe they're going to re repurpose those. They're saving those shoes in that jacket there as part of the plundering. But just to see those shoes in that position as if they had just been kind of taken off and think about, you know, the shoes that we see in the museums or that are and bronzed along the Danube in Hungary as, as a memorial and um, and the, the power of that, uh, those silences and that absence to really think about what was lost and what is lost 
that we all lose as far as civilizations, right? And all we have left, as you say, um, is a photograph. One photograph, too, can pass across time and space from its creator to family members, prosecutors, curators, historians, and the viewing public. So you've, you've brought this world brilliantly, I think, tragically back to life in your new book, The Ravine, a family, a photograph, a Holocaust massacre revealed. It's a must read for anyone interested in this stuff. Finally, Wendy, we've had a couple of people on the show recently, actually at both of them Anglo-Jews, uh, John Kampfner writing about contemporary Germany, why the Germans do it better, notes from a grown-up country, and the Paris-based journalist Peter Gumbel, citizens of everywhere searching for identity in the age of Brexit. Both these writers, the distinguished journalists, are talking about how now Germany has changed. Kampfner particularly says it, that Germany now is leading civilization in the last 75 years. Um, what did this book teach you about forgiveness? if anything, as a historian, as a Jew, as someone who has been so important in bringing what happened back to life? Hmm. Well, that's an interesting question. I mean, I personally um, don't feel as if uh, I, you know, that forgiveness has to happen for me. I wasn't directly impacted by these events. I have the privilege of studying them from a distance, um, both in time as well as my own kind of personal family history. Um, so that's the advantage I have. So I don't carry around that sense of, um, you know, seeking forgiveness. And I, I don't know, I can't speak to anyone who's been through something like this, if that capacity is there. It's just so, you know, as I described that scenario of losing a family member in that brutal way and um, through murder um, and maybe having witnessed that or yourself or someone being tortured and what that does traumatically to you, to an individual, if that ability is there for forgiveness. I think there is space for reconciliation. I think there's space for understanding. Um, I, I don't think that, you know, I'm not proposing forgetting. I'm an historian who's trying to remember and to try to keep the documentation and the memory alive. Um, but I think that, you know, over time there's understanding. And when you study these, the context of this and see um, just how it escalated to that moment and how specific it was to that moment, um, uh, you know, after the war and now we're in a different context. So that creates a space for um, coming together and finding common ground. But Certainly, um, when these wounds are really fresh, when these things are, are happening, you know, in real time, I, I, I don't know um, how uh, forgiveness sometimes is, is really possible. It's, um, it's, it's, a very, it's a very difficult question. It's something that I, I can't answer. I have not gone through this. I can't speak to that. Well, it's nice to have such an ambivalent, morally ambivalent historian, uh, Wendy. Uh, so many good writers, great writers have written about photography from Susan Sontag to Jeff Dyer. He has a new book out. I think you've added yourself to the pantheon with this new book, or The Ravine, A Family, A Photograph, A Holocaust Massacre Revealed. Congratulations. Real honor Thank to have you. you on the show. And we'll have you back, Wendy, maybe writing about something slightly more cheerful than, uh, <laughs> than mass murder in the Ukraine. Thank you so much. Thank you so much for this opportunity. You've been listening to Keynote, hosted by me, Andrew Key. Make sure to join us the rest of this season as we explore how to fix capitalism. Make sure to visit us at lithub.com 
where you can subscribe to the show in iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify, or wherever you listen to your podcasts. While you're at it, if you enjoyed what you heard, we'd appreciate a rating on iTunes. Or if you'd simply tell a friend about the show, that would also help too. Today's episode was produced and edited by Justin Alvarez and the team at Lit Hub Radio. See you next week, and thanks so much for listening.